In today's busy world, it has become harder and harder to find the time to take care of our health. We are spending more hours working behind our desks, sleeping less and struggling to eat healthy food, impacting on our quality of life. The Sweat Equity Podcast will give you the clarity for achieving optimal health and performance. Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of the Sweat Equity Podcast. Today we're very lucky to be joined by the current Managing Director of Interisk, a dual Rugby World Cup winner and former Wallabies captain, a man who has done many things for charity raising over $30 million and been acknowledged with an Order of Australia, and in his spare time is a Fox Sports Rugby commentator. Bill Combs, welcome to the Sweat Equity Podcast. Thank you, thanks for having me. Now from that introduction alone, it's clear that you achieved so much. What has been your proudest achievement to date? Uh, I've got four children that are alive, and that's probably the the big thing. Um, you know, that's by far and away the hardest thing that you ever do is raise kids, and hopefully they come out normal, and hopefully they come out healthy, and hopefully they come out um, with good future prospects. So that's the, a huge challenge, particularly, uh, I think, growing up in these days of social media makes a huge difference to something that when I was a kid I didn't have to suffer. And how do you uh, make time for your family? Obviously you've got so much going on there. Uh, I guess one of the things that having been an elite, elite athlete does is helps you or forces you to manage your time pretty effectively. Um, so I always put time away in the diary for the important things uh, in their lives. Um, I've always been there for their sport on the weekend. Um, uh, despite the commentary job, we could always sort of work around that. Um, you know, I've always sort of been there for the, the graduation things and parent-teacher nights and all those sort of important things. So it's important to, for them to see that you're supporting um, them. Uh, so it's just it's time management it's just having an effective diary and and being disciplined around it Um, and and that's what I've been able to do and so that's it's really something an elite sport is able to teach um, people yeah I mean clearly you're you're very disciplined in in terms of what you've achieved and and I was going to ask you where where does that all come from in in terms of work but do you ever go through periods where you become unmotivated and and almost lack discipline and how do you how do you manage around that yeah I I think we all do actually around um around the exercise that I do these days uh I'm very disciplined and I uh I know that ultimately it um it works in my favour um, just as much mentally as it does physically. So, you know, I get up every morning around about quarter to five and I either head on the road and walk the dog or I'll go to swim squad like I did this morning or I'll hit the gym. Um, so I just, I'm, you know, determined to get something done every day. On the weekends, I do a little bit more. Uh, so that's important to me because it helps my mental health. And so I know it does, I feel better when I'm in the office, I feel better when I'm around people. So that's 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 a really important part of my life. So it's not hard on that side. I think from a work perspective, um, when you're in a pretty senior position, you've 
you know, part of leadership is maintaining that discipline. But yeah, it's hard if they're there. If there are the, th- the thing that is my worst enemy is if there are quiet times. If there's quiet times, then you can start to drift. So try and keep myself busy as much as possible, um, without interfering in the everyday jobs of the people around me. Um, so and there's always opportunities that you can create ideas that come to your head, and it's a matter of actioning those things rather than sitting about them and dwelling on them too much. It's interesting that you say you want to keep yourself busy because I guess most people say I'm, I'm just too busy to do anything. Uh, do you then have to find time for quiet and, and how does that work for you? Uh, with four kids I don't have a huge amount of quiet <laughs> but uh, you know I love on the weekends reading the paper. I pick up the Australian and sometimes the, the Australian newspaper is a ripper on a Saturday because it... Um, it might take me till Thursday to read the whole thing. And, you know, I take it, there's some great articles. I take it to bed at night sometimes. I do the crossword and the Sudoku, um, you know, little things like that, which gives me more quiet times. And <clears throat> I love my Sunday afternoons. I, I enjoy cooking. And Sunday overs, I like to relax and cook up some thing, whatever it might be, that I can find a recipe somewhere and have a glass of, or a bottle of white and you know just chill out and uh so I, I do get i don't get a lot of time during the week for that but i do make sure i get some time on the weekend to have a bit of a chill out and have you i mean have you tried there's a lot of talk about mindfulness and meditation have you tried any of those things or do you see that that time doing the newspaper or that time cooking is that your yeah that is my mindfulness practice. i guess I, I really enjoy yoga um i probably don't do enough of it of it as i would like to do but I really enjoy um, when I get to do that, and, and that sort of adds to the sort of meditative to a degree, um, and it's also great exercise at the same time, so I tick both those boxes. Um, meditation, we certainly tried that uh, in rugby way back in about 1997, 96, 97. Um, actually, it might have even been earlier. And uh, it... Um, it didn't really float my boat a great deal, I've got to say. Um, but, you know, if, if there's probably something I am deficient on, uh, well, I'm deficient on lots, but, but having that relaxation time is probably something I could do a little bit, little bit more of, probably a little bit more sleep. Um, you know, they say how important sleep is. I probably only get about, on average, six hours a night. Um, and, you know, you probably need more than that. Yeah, I imagine it. I mean, like you say, it must be so hard with irregular schedules when you're commentating. It's it's not mm. consistent. So um, I guess the other thing that I, I tuned into what you were saying, a lot of the activities that you do these days are very individual uh, and coming from a, a team environment. Do you miss that at all? Um, no, because when you're in the office, you've got a lot of people around you and you're always, you know, that that's a sort of team environment to me. Um, I still do play one team sport, and that's water polo. So um, I play with a bunch of old blokes on a Tuesday night, and, <laughs> you know, our goalie's 72 years of age, and our youngest guy, I'm having a guess here, but he looks like a baby to me, so he's probably 30. Um, so, uh, but the majority of the guys in that team are over 50, so they're, you know, we go and have a couple of beers after the game, and that, that's, that's great. Um, so that's that's the team sports side of things, um, but no, I'm I'm very happy in in sort of my own company on the weekends to just do some of those individual things because you get 
so little time of it during the week. So, um, uh, you know, swimming squad actually is a team event. Many people wouldn't think it is, but it's, it, it is part of a group that's doing something together. Um, but when you're in the office all day with people, you might have to go to a lunch with a group of people or you're going out to dinner with um, clients or whatever it might be or going to presentations. There is a lot of time during the day where you're surrounded by people. It sounds like you're getting more than enough uh, activity and, and, and stimulus in, in that side of things. Let's, let's go back to, I guess, rugby and, and leadership. And when I spoke to a few clients of mine who are rugby traffic, tragics, uh, all of them said that whenever you played, you, you seem to bring this aura of confidence to a team. Um, that, that everyone sort of had this belief every time you stepped on the field. I mean, how would you describe your style of leadership? Um, that's very kind of them to, to, to say that. I, th- I think part of part of that comes from being in a great team where everyone is confident and everyone around them. Uh, there's a huge amount of trust that's built up and that you have to trust people to do their job because if you're doing your own as well as theirs, then something's missing, it's deficient. And, you know, I was lucky enough to say to be part of two World Cup teams and I think the great strength of those teams were that people did a know what their job was and two they did it um and that that creates a huge amount of trust in a team so um so i think that confidence just comes from having terrific people around you and you know when it comes to building teams in in a corporate environment it's exactly the same if you don't have people that um you know you have common values with which creates a, a common bond um then it's uh, and that you trust. Then it's very hard to build a cohesive executive team or, or in fact, a co- cohesive company. So um, that confidence comes from trust. I was just going to ask you that about uh, you know the, those lessons of leadership learnt in sport and how you now apply it in in the corporate world. I mean, what other what other crossovers do you see there between, I guess, what you learnt as an athlete and then how do you apply that into corporate world these days I was talking to my daughter about this um, the other day about team sport and she was part of her degree and was doing a speech around a topic and she was talking about perhaps doing something on team sport and you know she asked me what are the three sort of things that I think came out of um, team sport for me Um, and uh, it, it really is the three R's is relationships and you learn how to deal with different people and different personalities and and people you, you may not always like but people that you need to learn how to get on with you might be rooming with them for a couple of days or you know whatever it might be um, and you have to build that relationship so that when on the field you get peak performance so relationships are uh, particularly relevant um, Resilience uh, in any in any life, um, whether it's sporting or work or family or whatever, um, things don't always go that you way the way that you um, that you want them to, um, and you have to be resilient uh, around that. And I think. Um, you know, accepting defeat, accepting that you're not always the best on a particular day are, are dishes that uh, are served up regularly to sports people. Um, 
you don't always win. And then how you cope with that uh, lack of success hopes, hopefully drives you um, to greater success in the future. So resilience is something that I don't think we place enough emphasis today, uh, particularly in our youth. Um, yeah, so I think uh, I think that's they're, they're, you know probably two of the key lessons that, that you know comes out of team sports. Um, yeah, so relationships and resilience are critical. Yeah, I mean, and and that's a, I think for you particularly, what I've noticed is you say always seem a very positive person. <coughs> Pardon me, really positive person. Talk me through some of the toughest things you've been through. I mean, obviously, some stuff has been spoken about a lot. Um, for you personally, what, what's been some of the, the hardest things that you had to go through? Oh, you know, from a from a rugby perspective, um, you know, injury was always the hardest thing to go to uh, to go through. I, I was out for uh, about eighteen months with Achilles tendons tendon injuries. Um, so you know, questioning yourself of whether you're ever going to come back from that is is, uh, is hard. And again, you've got to remain resilient through that uh, and stay positive through that. A, a positive mindset certainly helps in the treatment of injuries. I'm convinced. Um, and and you know, personally, the, it's definitely the hardest was illnesses to two of my kids. Um, so I ran over my daughter in the driveway of our house, and you know. There's no, there's nothing else that's uh, mm. that's tougher than that. Um, so we had a great result with her. We were we were, we were lucky. We were blessed. Um, I'm a strong believer in karma. Um, so you know that was that was a pretty tough period now in, in our lives and something we look back at now and sort of shudder when we think about it. But still, we had a great result. Yeah, we were lucky. And I guess I mean, do you have? You know, ways that you cope through those times is there certain things that you do and I know you've you've gone on and done some amazing things off the back but actually when you're going through that is there anything that you you do to, to create that that mindset for you? no I think I think again you know remaining positive taking every little piece of, of news that you get that's uh, positive and and really clinging on to those things I think we're also lucky to have terrific people around us then so some of our, our great mates at um, some I played rugby with, some that we didn't, and the relationship with their partners as well. Um, you know, they gathered around and grabbed my other three kids and uh, helped look after them and, and feed them, and they put a roster together of who was going to provide the meals on certain days and all that sort of stuff. So that was that was quite amazing, um, the response that we had from from those people. And that's, that certainly helped. Uh, so, you know, you just grab every little snippet that you can that tr- tries to create that positivity. Um, and, you know, you, you certainly know that uh, mothers do have a sixth sense when it comes to looking after their kids. And, uh, and it was my wife's call at the end of the day when my daughter didn't seem to be getting better and she just said to the doctors, despite their protestation that she said just get that incubator out of her throat and that was um you know she my wife felt that was the thing that was holding her back um so it was there to help her breathe and after three or four days of no improvement 
Um, they listened to my wife, took the intubator out, and three days later she was out of intensive care. So um, mothers do have that sixth sense. It's amazing. I've never, I've never heard that that part of mm. of the story. And I mean, you've now gone on. As I mentioned, you've you've raised over thirty million dollars through the Humpty Dumpty Foundation. How does one just start such an iconic charity event? And, and I guess more importantly, what drives you there? What I mean, you've been involved in a number of years to do that, and it grows bigger and bigger every year. How do you, what, what drives there? Um, well, the, the thing that started it was my son was ill, and um, I started it because of having to spend five days in intensive care at Royal North Shore, which was like a, um, uh, probably too strong a word, but it was a bit of a dump, and uh, so that sort of started me. And I think, you know, leadership is... You know, if you do have an, an idea or if you do have something you want to do, then you've got to create something to start it. So nothing, leadership doesn't happen without action. Um, and providing that action, sort of one thing leads to another and eventually it snowballs. And um, uh, what, what keeps me motivated now, here we are 19 years later from the Balmoral Burn, is that knowledge that the equipment that, uh, Humpty Dumpty raised the money to buy actually saved my daughter's life four years later um, so when I mentioned before I'm a strong believer in karma that's yeah. why I'm a strong believer in karma um, so uh, you know nothing happens without action and a big part of leadership is creating that action I guess along those lines I mean I mean, there's many pearls of wisdom already coming out here, but you've been exposed to some of the world's greatest coaches over your, over your career. Who who's the coach that's had the greatest impact on you and and shaped you the most? I think um, there were there were probably two. There was a guy called Alan Gaffney um, who was a Randwick coach, uh, and he picked me in first grade Colts for the first time. I, I didn't play first grade rugby at school. I was a nobody, I wasn't even going to play rugby when I left school, but a mate's old man forced me to go down to Randwick and play, So, uh, and he, he was an ex-Wallaby himself, uh, and a great man. So I, I went down there, Herb Barker was, was his name, and I went down to Randwick and I was no one, and they just, I got picked in first grade Colts ahead of a guy who was Australian schoolboys hooker. I thought, this is really weird. And I said, well, really? Me in first grade? He goes, mate, we don't care who, who you are. We just pick you on how you perform and you've been great since you've come down here, so you're getting a crack. So, you know, that was great and it was a great lesson to, you know, just give people a chance. You know, they may not have the biggest, um, uh, the biggest reputation in the world or the greatest CV in the world, but sometimes you just get an inkling that... Um, people are good and you give them a go and stretch them and a lot of times they'll succeed and, and they they love that you put that faith in them uh, so you, you you always get a good response I think the other guy was Bob Dwyer and, and Bob who was my wallop he was also a Randwick coach but also the a guy that picked me uh, out of second grade at Randwick to play for the Wallabies and, and Bob also put enormous faith in me and put his own reputation really on the line um, to pick a couple of young blokes. Tim Horan as well was picked then. Tim hadn't played a game for Queensland yet. Actually, I don't think he played a first-grade game uh, in in the Brisbane club comp yet. And Tony Daly, who'd never played for New South Wales, he'd played a bit of club football, but that was about it. 
and he picked all three of us in the same test match. And so it was a big risk for Bob. And so the other thing that Bob did, which was uh, was terrific, was breaking everything down into something that was simple and really understandable. And, you know, so many coaches today and so many leaders try to overcomplicate things. And really, at the end of the day, it's the simple things that matter and get the simple things right the basic things right um, in a rugby sense you get your catching and passing right a lot of the rest of the game falls into place the fundamentals and simple complexities that's yeah that's right um, do you still use coaches and mentors yeah I mean coaches mentors do you, do you still have them in your life now and what role do they play uh, yeah I do in, informally no, no formal coaches but you know not all problems and issues that you face are the same um, but most of us are lucky enough to know people that have been in a similar situation and that, that you trust um, and and I fall back on a lot of those people I've been very lucky in my rugby to career to meet a lot of uh, successful businessmen over the years and they've been successful a lot of them because they've remained down to earth and very true to themselves and so I, I, I really like them and some of them are now uh, in their 80s and I still catch up with them and they still have great great brains and uh, you know, I'm a big believer in the grey workforce and uh, you know, I've got a guy that works for me here that's uh, in his 80s and uh, I've got another guy that's in his early 70s and you know, when there are uh, issues that I want to, want to run something past someone, they're the blokes I turn to because um, they, they are, have got such great knowledge and, and they've got no ego. Mm. Um, that's why I love talking to them. And life experience as well. It's huge uh, life experience. And I guess, uh, you know, coming back to rugby again, you retired in 99. Yep. 32 and after a lot of, lot of injuries and... Uh, I imagine you go through this period where you, you've got this real change in identity where you're Phil Kearns the rugby player and then it's a case of who is Phil Kearns now? What is that identity? Talk me through, I guess, that period of your life, any struggles you might have had and, and how you've happened to land on your feet. Oh, I think I, you know, I was very lucky to have played in an era where we were amateur and we had to have something else in our lives. We had to have a job, we had to study. Um, we had to do those things because, you know, I, I remember the first tour I went on and I discovered that we actually got paid for going on that tour. Um, so we not only did we get our tracksuit and our blazer and things like that, um, we also got a daily allowance of $32 a day. <laughs> and I thought, this is heaven, it doesn't get any better than this. And uh, so we had to have jobs. And so I was ready, like we had to be ready. That's just the way life was then for, for a rugby player. And it's, it's obviously very different today, but we strongly encourage, very strongly encourage our professional players to have something else. Most of them do, most of them do study and, and have something else in their lives. And that is, that gives you a huge um, head start in, in that transition from uh, from playing to working. Um, most of the transitions that don't work out are the ones where they don't have anything else. So, 
Um, so I, already, I always knew, I always knew that my time was coming to an end. Um, so, you know, three or four years out, I knew that that was going to be the time where my career was going to finish, so I had lots of time to prepare. Uh, and, you know, I actually didn't give, and I'm not sure about other guys, but never gave any thought at all to my identity. My identity is, I don't know, I don't have one, I'm just me. And other people might have this, you know, view of what I am or look like or whatever. But I, I really don't have that much of a view on myself, if for want a better term. I'll talk to anyone in the street. I'll, you know, whatever. Have a beer with anyone at the pub. It's I do mostly pretty normal things. I watch my kids play footy. I enjoy a beer and I go to work and uh, and hopefully put in a good day's effort that that's fruitful. So um, I don't aim to have any particular identity. I mean, it sounds like you've got a very strong sense of, of self and uh, authentic in, in your approach to everything. Um, I know last year there was a lot of talk, it might have been the year before, uh, about you taking over the Rugby Australia role of, of CEO. How close were you to to getting in that position and secondly if you were in that position what changes would you make other than getting rid of AFL because that's just a waste <laughs> of a sport um, yeah no I was down to the final two so so I missed out um, you know that was disappointing I, I think uh, you know I would have loved the job otherwise I wouldn't have um, wouldn't have applied for it um, you know it's impossible to say what you do differently Pe- people make decisions uh, in their life or in their work environment based on what data they have at that particular point of time and at that particular point in time and there are lots of bit, bits of data um, and often on reflection you know they'll go back and say oh, I could have done that differently um, yeah probably they could have but that's in hindsight when data's points have changed and times have moved on etc etc you know you look at the situation with Israel Folau. If he'd said what he'd said five years ago, probably no one would have cared. But times have changed and things have moved on and, you know, that's that's where we are today. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what I would have done differently or what I would do differently because I'm not in their shoes. Is there anything you would change fundamentally about the structure of rugby in, in the country? and? You know, how, how are we going to, we've got a World Cup coming up, how are we going to compete continually at that level? How are you going to get people to engage more with the game? Yeah, um, it's probably inappropriate for, for me to comment on what I would do differently. Um, however, in terms of engaging, people engaging the game more, um, that comes with winning. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens in every code. Um, you know, crowds drop off when their team's losing and they pick up when their team's winning. And no matter where you are in the world or um, what the sport is, that that happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, we saw um, after the Parramatta Royals a few weeks ago, one at Bankwest Stadium, 52 to something, that uh, there's a lot of people jumped on that bandwagon. Like something <laughs> and, new and flashy. Yeah, so they went up there and the... Eels have had great crowds and then they've had two shocking losses over the last couple of weeks so I guarantee you their crowds will start to fall away again. 
So that's that's natural part of life. But if the Wallabies start to win again, I guarantee the crowds will be back. Ooh, they'll come back. Um, you know, I know you were just talking about hindsight, and it's always easy to look back and and say we should have done things differently. Obviously, concussion has been very topical in, in a lot of contact sports. Um, I imagine you've had your, your fair share over your career. Where do you see... Firstly, do you worry about the impacts of, of the concussions on you personally? Uh, and how do you see the game evolving to address these sort of issues? Uh, I'm a very lucky man. I've never been concussed. Uh, how is that possible? Never, never ever. Um, I actually had... Um, a health issue after um, I had my, a knee replacement about uh, 18, 20 months ago. And uh, they did a scan to make sure the infection hadn't gone to my brain and the brain surgeon says my brain was in amazing shape. It was very, very small, but it was in <laughs> great shape. And uh, so, you know, for, for, for me, I don't really have that concern. However, I do have concern for other people in the game and the players are getting bigger, they're getting faster and the contact is harder. Um, so I understand that we have to manage those things better than we did before. Well, in fact, we didn't manage them at all before. There was nothing. So I think the game's made some great, um, pardon the pun, headway in terms of, uh, of dealing with these situations. And we're probably not going to know for another couple of decades how badly affected some of our players are. Um, you know, we've had some high-profile situations. Elton Flatley, Beric Barnes, for example, um, who who suffered quite a bit uh, through concussion. And maybe it's going to be another 20, 30 years before we find out what the real impact of those things are on their extended life. Um, but you, you know, you still look at the amount of concussion in the game of rugby. And it's actually not that much, um, you know. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking after it as much as as much as we can. Prioritising player welfare and, and oh, those totally. sort of things is. Yeah, I mean, for these one. players now, it's their sport uh, is their career. Certainly yeah. for the first ten years of it, if they're lucky, ten years of it. Um, so yeah, they've got to look after their bodies, and it's up to the governing bodies of the game to be, be looking after them as well. All right, to finish up, we like to do a bit of a rapid-fire questions, short, yep. punchy questions. Uh, are all Kiwis a bunch of cheats or just the ones <laughs> that play rugby? Uh, gee. Well, they all play rugby. Ipso facto, they're all cheats. Logical conclusion. <laughs> In seriousness, who do you think will win the World Cup? How, how do you think we'll go? Who will take it out? Oh, gee. It wouldn't surprise me if a, if a Northern Hemisphere nation won it. Um, their improvement's been astronomical. They've got huge financial resources behind their game as well, which certainly helps. Um, there's probably six teams that can win it, including the Wallabies. Um, we've always been good World Cup performers. Uh, there's only been two World Cups where we haven't made it to the semi-final. We're in the final last time around when everyone said we were hopeless and we ended up in the final and um, we performed pretty well. So I certainly don't write us off. Um, but the teams, England, Ireland, South Africa, Australia, uh, 
Wales is on the outside. But, uh, but you know, any one of those five nations, when you come together on a day in a knockout sort of tournament, anyone can win. It's about who shows up. It is about who shows up. And, you know, so I don't think, you know, New Zealand wouldn't be my first pick. <laughs> um, what's your favourite indulgence? Red wine and chocolate. What a, what a combination. Oh, uh, what's your favourite wine at the moment? You go to? Uh, oh, gee. I've got a cellar of about 800 bottles and I've been trying to sort of drink them down. So I've had some cracking wines of late. <laughs> um, to, yeah, probably too many. But um, no, so I've had some cracking wines of late. I do love, a friend of mine has a vineyard on Kangaroo Island called the Islander Estate and I've pulled out some of his older stuff recently and it's magnificent. It's uh, lived up to expectations. Absolutely. Now I've heard a lot about your uh, your book club or, or wine club. What what, what <laughs> title do we do we give it? If you if you could invite anyone along to that, dead or alive, who would you who would you bring to book slash wine club? Gee, now there's a question. Um, There's so many people out there you can think of, you know, from... I've always thought Bill Clinton would be great fun to have a couple of drinks with because I reckon he'd have some awesome stories <laughs> about all sorts of things. Um, so Bill would be sort of right up there. Uh, but, you know, there, there's some incredible people around today and, and you know, particularly in the world of female ath- um, athletes. And, uh, and the world's changed an enormous amount. And if I look at probably athletes that I love watching at the moment, I love watching uh, Sam Kerr play. Um, I love um, I, I love watching uh, uh, Elise, um, Alyssa Healy and Elise Perry play. I mean, she's a phenomenal athlete. Cr- cricket and soccer is, Unbelievable, is, yeah. is special. Um, and now I'm just having a mental blank, um, and I've met her, and she's just fantastic. One of my favourite favourite rugby players um, at the moment, and uh, I was lucky enough to be in a room and having chat to her about her philosophy on rugby and a few things just recently. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm just having a mental blank. She's no, no, no. Um, oh, she's just an awesome rugby player, Aussie girl. Um, and just to hear their perspective and a female perspective around sport and around the issues that women don't seem to have in sport that men seem to have in sport and how they stay so grounded and and, and true is, is terrific and you know blokes could learn a lot from them I find that amazing that every athlete that you've just mentioned are all female athletes and I think the future is amazing. Where, where do you see how you know, how long do you think it will be before they're on on par? Oh, you know, physically, I don't think they'll ever be on par. Yeah, um, it's just not the way the world happened. Yeah, uh, but in terms of uh, their skill levels, absolutely, some of them um, some of them are already. Yeah, um, you know, they won't have the power that men have got. You know, they'll be the odd person that may have but yeah. I think it'll be you know pretty rare 
Um, but their skill level that they show, um, the determination that they show, I think is something something pretty special. So I do like, do really like watching um, some women's sport. Um, most of them, not all of them. I won't name the ones that I don't <laughs> like a lot. Uh, so so I think you know they're, they're great role models out there for for girls. But you know this this myth um, that this is new uh, is just that it's a myth I mean if you look back at some of the greatest names in sport if you were to name the greatest Olympic Australian athletes of all time you'd be talking about the Frasers and the Cuthberts and the Marlene Matthews and the Anna Mears and the you know those people Raylene Boyles Kathy Freemans you know women have played an enormous part um, in sport in this country and Mm -hmm. something that's probably we don't talk enough about um, but the rise of the female athlete today, I think, is is, is fantastic. It's uh, very exciting. Uh, and last quick question: What are your religious beliefs, and do you use social media? <laughs> um, you know, I don't use social media. Uh, in fact, I try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, and my relig- religious beliefs will stay with me because I don't think I should be espousing what my virtues are on anyone else so I'll just keep that for myself that is a beautiful answer to finish (laughs) on thank you very much for your time today Phil Uh, it's always a great pleasure catching up and and talking all these these fantastic topics Uh, good luck with the Balmoral burn this weekend thanks mate no problem thank you for listening to the sweat equity podcast don't forget to hit the subscribe button or connect with me on Instagram at greg.stark or to train with my team and I head to betterbeing.com.au